listening to Evolutionary Feminist. My name is Aurora, and I am your host. We're here to evolve through conversation, and we're not always going to get it right. But we're learning, and we're committed to understanding more perspectives, more voices, more people, more experiences. Because evolving is the key to success in life in the universe. We're here to listen to the voices of women and those who support them. Because this world is longing for women to lead. This is an opportunity for us to gain knowledge and experience from each other and share new ideas to create the future we truly envision. I want to thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of Evolutionary Feminist. I hope that you gain a new perspective on life and seek to uncondition your mind so that you can live as authentically as possible. Hi, Megan. Hi, Aurora. I'm here today with Megan Batia of Amory Podcast, my favorite podcast of all time. Super excited to have you here. Today, we are talking about mother-daughter dynamics and First of all, neither you nor I are professionals in any way around this, but we are humans with experience and uh, we have shared experiences with other women as well who, you know, from friends, sisters, et cetera, all of those women who have also shared their experience with the mother-daughter dynamic. So we have a lot of like collective history experience together, I think. Yes. Well, for those that don't know, I I will give you a little introduction. We have a really great um, podcast interview that I did with you um, that's available on Spotify um, at Evolutionary Feminist Podcast. And that is where you really give us a whole introduction into like who you are, what you're all about, which is super exciting. And anyone who really wants to know more about you can check that out. And so today we're going to be using your expertise in relationships. Because one thing I love about you is how much you are fueled by relationships and see relationships reflected in all sorts of different dynamics. And yeah, so it's kind of my filter in the world. Exactly. And that's why I really wanted yeah. to have you on. Um, because I know that you and I have related to each other quite a bit in terms of being mothers and also being daughters. Yeah, there's so much packed in there in that relationship between being a daughter and growing up in this world and the it really is a, a male dominated world which I think is starting to shift a bit, but I think I'm I'm 40 years old and I'm just starting to realize how much I internalize that. And so like you said, I'm not an, I'm not an expert. I didn't study this. I have no PhD in this area, but just a lot of lifetime experience and I think the filter and what's driving me most right now is that I'm really working through a lot of fundamental beliefs that I've had to shift in order to empower myself and really be the person that I want to be in this world. And now I see a lot of ripples happening in my relationship in the way that I view my mother and being a mom and how I interact with my kids. And I'm starting, I feel like I'm starting to really get down to some of the fundamental beliefs that have caused certain behaviors that have really created a pattern in in not only my life, but I think where a lot of a lot of the patterns that we see in society, we can take this really big view and say, okay, well, it's, we have to change the whole society, and you know, these are social structures that we have to dismantle. Which 
yes, I agree. But I think um, what's more empowering for me is to take it down to the really personal level to say, where am I empowered to shift my own dynamic with myself and with other people that if enough, if enough of us did it really, it would start to send ripple effects and we would by default create a different social structure. (laughs) Yes. I 100% agree. Because in fact, if you really think about like trying to change the world on a global scale like that, it can be incredibly defeating and disempowering and, and truthfully, you know, we all have the ability to take control over our part Mm -hmm. in the whole dynamic. Can I share a realization that I feel like I'm just starting to understand now? Yes. Um, so I, I think about when my children were born and I'm, I'm a mother of twins and they're my first and only, so they're my only experience. And I know when they were born, I felt probably like many mothers do that their, their safety is my responsibility, you know, their life, it's my responsibility. And that is a huge, 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 um, responsibility and honor, which is unbelievable. But I think what I've noticed is that if we imagine the moment of birth to be this moment where we literally give all of our power to this baby, we put our needs second Um, to provide for what this baby needs. It doesn't matter if they're tired, we wake up and we feed them, they cry, we console them, we hold them, you know, we are built for that, which I think is incredible. What I've started to realize though, is that now that they're almost five, the hard part for me as an individual has been to reinstitute boundaries. Mm. Um, And those boundaries are necessary for both them and for me. So for example, we're through well through the potty, uh, potty training stages but my son has this last stronghold where he wants me to do like the double check of wiping his butt, which is, I know that this is a funny example, but I've had to hold the line to be like, Hey buddy, you got this. Like you got this. And he'll be mad at me. He just, you know, reflects his anger because I'm instituting a new boundary that I need to be there. I cannot continue wiping his butt. (laughs) That's (laughs) not going to happen. (laughs) but I've had to reinstitute this boundary and there's a frustration there. And I've had to, and my husband will agree that, you know, when they push back on me, they push back tenfold of what they push back on him. It's because I, you know, by me inserting these things, which are both for me, because I will resent my children if I'm not getting my needs met and I can get, not get my needs met if I continue to do what I've done for them. So it's this weird process of, you know, in the beginning, there's really no boundaries to just like the children are learning their, you know, their own um, abilities in the world and they're gaining more power. We have to kind of reclaim our own power through that process. And this, this is, it's such a fundamental subconscious level that I think if, if the root belief is, I'm responsible for my children's safety. If that gets collapsed with, I'm responsible for my children's happiness, I won't reinstitute a lot of these boundaries because they're going to get frustrated when I do. And so I've, I've noticed that is kind of a sticking point for me where mm. I've had to really, really empower myself. That is amazing and really difficult to make those switches because we kind of come along with so much of what we just grew up knowing experiencing or like knowing to be true so much of that has to be like really intentional parenting now I feel like Mm -hmm. you know there's so much more that can be changed with each step uh doing your best to make it an intentional one you know instead of getting lost in the default mode you know of what parenting can be of just what we've experienced yeah 
when I think about my parents and my mom and my mom was an incredible mom. She still is. And there's so many moments though, where I see my pushback on her and where, where probably she didn't even create enough boundaries. And I can see that now later on as she worked through a divorce when I was a teenager and I saw her finally institute boundaries that she had needed for a very long time. And I'm really proud of my mom in that way. Uh, my mom had to go from, she basically was not the breadwinner uh, in the household. She had to re-educate herself, start a whole new career because she decided to get divorced. And, and I, during that time, I don't think I gave her the credit that, that really she's due for reclaiming her own power in that relationship and for herself. And sometimes I think mothers or the mothering can get lost in it because as, a, as what we consider a good mother, we're really creating the context in which our kids can thrive. And, um, and that's not seen. That's like a superpower that nobody can see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. I totally agree. And I also think that sometimes it, it can even be like difficult to manage those boundaries um, because there's so much emphasis put on, on mothers sacrificing, right? Mm, Like mm -hmm. there's so much emphasis on, you know, if a mother does it all, you know, like does so many of the things, all of the comforting, all of the, you know, well, and of course not all, there are lots of other family structures in which, you know, fathers do a lot, which I think is awesome and totally great. Can we talk to that point too? Because I think as we use the the word mother, I would like to open it up enough so that it doesn't gender is not at play there. Yes. So that we can really say that it's, we all have feminine and masculine qualities mm-hmm. in ourselves. And I think even in um, it, not only just in same sex couples where you have, you know, two people playing two different roles, but even within uh, a heterosexual couple, you could have a father that's more mothering and a mother that's more patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really about the the energies that and and the role and the role that we play. I agree. Yes, I totally okay. agree. Yeah, no, and I think that that's like one of the it it becomes kind of like an interesting part of our inherited trauma. I think having this dynamic of like we do have a certain expectation socially about mothers filling so many holes and voids for everyone, you know, like doing all the things. And there's a a bit of like prize in that for us. My point is that I put a lot of pressure on myself to be a lot of things because of what I feel like I'm told from the outside world, you know, mm. from media, et cetera, you know, like I'm supposed to be all of these incredible, amazing things. And some of them I am, and I really enjoy being, but there is like a certain amount of pressure to keep up with doing things that are just like role based. And I think it's easy to get lost in those pieces because they're not really um, identity pieces. You know, they're not things that like are really like, oh yes, I am someone, I mean, sure. I'm someone who like loves to do laundry or whatever. Some people say that, right? Some people are that way. And that's like, not like a motherly quality, but there are a lot of duties that have gone typically with like a feminine female role, you know, in terms of household dynamics and what is typical and sort of has been the norm. And that you lose your identity in a lot of those things that become the self-sacrifice that is motherhood. And in self-sacrificing, I think that can sometimes lead to like resentment and criticism and, you know, of the self and of others. I mean, there's just. Yeah. In that, 
in that role, that self-sacrifice, I think we go into uh, what's called the Cartman drama triangle. We became the, we become the victim, but we put ourselves in the victim role. Totally. And then in the rest of the triangle, there's the persecutor and the savior. And sometimes even if we view that in parenthood, the mom could be, could be the savior for the kids. And then she's continually, not purposefully, but putting her kids into the victim role. Um, but what is the healthy in empowerment triangle is instead of that savior, you become the coach. And that's where I found a lot of books and a lot of the conscious parenting. It actually puts the mother in the coach role um, or even a, in a challenger role instead of a persecutor, like healthily challenging the children to, um, you know, to do things for themselves. But that's where when you experience the pushback, the pushback is, is going to be there. I think anytime you challenge somebody to do something that they haven't done before, there's, there might be some frustration there. I see my kids go through it constantly like, hey, I can't do that. And it's just being present and working through that and yeah. waiting until they get that beautiful smile on their face like, oh my God, I did it. Um, <laughs> but if we take their frustration and just say, well, I'll do it for you. And we not only do that for a moment, but we do that for a lifetime uh, where we think we're helping our children, where we are definitely creating patterns that are not helping them. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's one aspect to the mother-child bond. You know, I think of like classic Cinderella, right? And it's a fairy tale, but you know, Cinderella's stepmother and like how that whole relationship was and how that's not uncommon to a certain degree, you know, and imagining all of these different ways in which mother-daughter relationships can be potentially toxic and that can be for like stepmothers as well. And that, that, especially if experienced in childhood, can often lead to the way that dynamics are experienced with women then mm. in general. And I think that oftentimes our, our relationships with our mothers are reflected in how we end up relating to women. Yeah, really good point. For you, um, I'm just wondering, like, what has been your experience in the process of both engaging as a daughter and also, um, like, relating to your mother now as you are a mother and, like, maybe the healing process that you have potentially gone through there? It's a really big journey. I'll try to summarize as best as possible. I, and I feel like I'm still in the middle of it because I still feel like I'm in the healing process with her. But I think what happened was as a young woman, I feel like I internalized a lot of, a lot of the values that I saw my dad portray. So being strong and independent. And he really, he really did instill a lot of values that I, I enjoy. I'm really happy about, but that were very male dominated. And so I started to get my self-worth based on um, who I was. Was I showing up as a leader? Was I, um, as, as I grew into my adulthood, was I making enough money? And I, I, for me, I feel like I, I internalized a ton of the, we can call them two things, the patriarchal values or really the capitalistic values, which are not too different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they're very, very, very tied because we exist in a lot of social structures where competition is valued, where we rate ourselves and where we are in the hierarchical structure and how much money you make is definitely incorporated in that. So I didn't realize it, but I was totally valuing myself in how much money I was making. So I had valued my career identity above really all identities. And okay, there's a, a lot of places I can go here, but the way that I, the way that that happened was I started 
to, because I internalized those values, I started to look down on my mom because my mom had foregone a career to raise three children. Um, she had to reeducate herself in, you know, in her forties, which now, like I said, I really value. And she's an incredibly strong woman for doing that. Then I thought I saw it as like, well, you're behind the eight ball, you know, you didn't have a career. So now you've got to do it. And, um, and so as an, as an adult, I placed so much value on how much money I made so much so that even when my own kids were born, I went back to work when they were three months old and we hired an au pair. And I, at that point, I thought I was doing the best for my family. I really did. And I was like, okay, I'm going to keep earning the money that is going to help them and pay for the au pair to be with them during the day. And honestly, it was easier. It was, if I'm honest, it was way easier to go to work every day than it was to be with my own children at, at, as infants, because that's a, it's so much work. It really is. And yeah. I, I so value the support and help that I had during that time, but I wasn't, I wasn't valuing that, that piece. I was like, good. I've outsourced that part. Now I can keep making money and keep having the identity of like a supporter for myself. And at a certain point that started to, it started to shift, but not purposefully. We had a lot kind of fall apart and I find myself now, and this is fast forward four years, I left that job. Um, we ended up selling our home and now I travel full time with my kids. So I'm full time with, with my two children and my husband is, is an amazing, amazing, amazing partner. And we are both very vested in, in educating our children and being with them. And it feels like a very even split now. Uh, but I've, I think thanks to that whole journey and that whole trajectory, now I value the time with my kids. Now I value the education. And I, also, I see it actually as the ultimate importance in, in my life, where four years ago when they were you know six months old, I couldn't see that. I thought that the most important thing was, you know, making as much money as I could. And, and now thanks to that journey, my reflection in my relationship with my mother has changed because where I, I really devalued her for just spending time with us and just raising us. Now I'm like, Oh my God, that's the most important thing in the world <laughs> because whoever's educating the children, how they're being with the children is how the kids are in like, incorporating into themselves the values what they value that you're you are it is the most important job in the whole wide world <laughs> but i didn't see that i just couldn't have seen it before and so i've gone through a process with myself of healing for myself of forgiving myself for not knowing how how important that was um for you know learning the lesson and how i had to learn the lesson and now i look at my mom and i'm like god thank you thank you mom for raising me where you, you supported me to be me and you allowed me to push back on you. And I didn't, you know, and I hurt you in certain ways and I'm really sorry. So these are the things that I'm just now learning how to express to her. And, um, and we have other rifts, you know, we have other rifts in there that are still being healed, but now I can see that she gave me the best gift that she could give me, which was supporting me and being me and and creating the context in which i felt safe and where i didn't feel criticized and she just is and was such a loving individual but because that's not as showy it's not as in your face as some of the male you know the masculine characteristics i i couldn't value it i just couldn't value it and now being a mom um, being with my kids every day and seeing how, how we're being and how my husband and I are being with, with our kids. Um, and my other, I don't know how big 
<laughs> want to let this conversation go, but with my other partners or the other people in the, in, in that are adults, um, how we model and how we relate is giving my kids the, the fundamental building blocks of relationships and how they relate to themselves and how they relate to other people in the world. And uh, yeah, it really is to me now the most important thing in the world. That is so beautiful. And it, so I actually, I read this article um, that was an interview with uh, a doctor, Jamie uh, Wernsman, and she, she had some really good advice uh, on how to heal relationships. And you already talked about basically like the things that she was suggesting. She had um, four points which I just feel like is like important to share with people who maybe don't know how to go about this process. And Um, I'm still learning. So please, please share. Yeah. And so uh, she was suggesting, you know, like, of course, first thing is like having a conversation or several, (laughs) which, oh, I mean, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh yes, the 27 hour long conversations. (laughs) The ones that really like bring about the most results, you know, like those conversations are long and arduous, but they also bring about the most healing. I think most importantly, when both parties are willing and like actively engaged in the conversation with the goal of resolution in mind. Yeah. People can really listen to each other compassionately when they know that the end goal is to understand each other better and each other's perspectives so that everyone can move on and forward because the ultimate goal is that the people want a relationship Mm. right two people and that that can be mother and daughter that can be father and son that can be mother and son it can be so many different things boyfriend and girlfriend it's really just conflict resolution Mm -hmm. and with the most meaningful people to us that can often be the hardest to resolve definitely And you bring up a good point because both people have to want to resolve it. And where I've I've felt stuck um, is either when I don't want to resolve it or I feel like they don't want to resolve it and then you're kind of at an impasse. And uh, yeah, you kind of have to wait until the moment is ripe. And because what we have to do, I think first, even before that, is go through a process of resolution uh, for ourselves. Because until we create space, because what we end up really rejecting or or denying in other people is what we reject and deny in ourselves. So until we can have a place of compassion for that bit in ourselves, it's really hard to have compassion for other people. So that's why I feel like I had to go through my own process of, of really identifying those pieces in myself and reincorporating them. And now I I can have that dialogue with my mother, even though I would have told you consciously, I wanted to heal it. I wasn't able, I wasn't there yet for myself. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, taking inventory for what is really true. And I think that what's important is both sides have to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that it's important to be able to, you know, have a conversation about something, but we really have to, in order to show up authentically in the conversation, we also have to like own our part and understand how we can communicate the things that we maybe wished we had or the things that we had needed or even the things that we currently need. You know, to communicate those things, we have to come from a place that's not trying to prove a point uh, that like someone hurt you, but rather like, I care so much about you that moving forward, like this is what I would love. This is the kind of relationship I would love to have. Mm-hmm. And you get to like move forward in a really authentic way. Um, but, but you also have to kind of let go of those past identities. Right. And I imagine that's 
it's, I mean, it's kind of the most difficult to do with parents because your parents experience you in all of your stages and phases, you know, and, and you experience them through some of theirs as well, but, you know, through a considerably different time in their life. So the dynamics are just inherently going to be a lot more, I think like those roots are deep and like firm. So it's hard to unpack the past. Yeah. It's always hardest to change or to shift with the people that we've known the longest. And yeah, it's so rooted in how we see ourselves and what are those identities and do we allow them to shift? And what I love is that there's so much power in breakdown. You know, we have to break down stuff that no longer serves us, but sometimes that breaking down is a breaking down of an identity for ourselves or other people and allowing ourselves, especially the hard parts I think is allowing ourselves to see other people as new. Yes. And that, yeah, without like dragging that past that was back. Well, you remember when you did this? And <laughs> and they might still act that way too. I mean, that's kind of the, the part of progress, you know, is that transition phase of like past identity to future identity is you are going to have those in-betweens of like coming back to messing up in the same old way again. Like, yeah. yep, still haven't learned that. Really trying to, but like mm-hmm. sometimes those you know, those patterns are hard to fix, you know? And I just imagine it like anyone who's like running a marathon or like, you know, biking or, you know, doing any sort of workout or whatever that like some, some days, even though you've made so much progress, like some days are just bad days and they're just, they don't go well, whatever Mm -hmm. the training is, whatever the elements are, whatever is going on in your head, Sometimes those days just like really suck. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that all your progress was for naught. That is a great point. That was you a know, great point. I'm so, I'm so, so, so curious. What are the other points in the, uh, so, from the I'm like, so, where am I? Where am I on that path? Yes. So she was saying, um, and she's a Chicago based uh, clinical psychologist, by the way. Uh, again, Dr. Jamie Wernsman. And she was saying um, that you can prepare talking points. So, you know, especially for relationships, I think that have been like really difficult, you know, you can recognize your true feelings because it's crucial to keeping the conversation productive and peaceful, but you have to do that inventory. Like you were just saying, you know, Mm -hmm. where you like really check in and say like, what is true for me? What is something that I really need to say? And I know for me personally, like sometimes there'll be something that I really want to talk about because it's just been bothering me. But if I really think about it, like, is it really something that needs to change? Is it something that I'm really upset about? Or is it just something that I can mention a preference state, you know, without expecting anything? Yeah. It's kind of like, it does this bringing up this point, support the growth of the conversation or does it not? Okay. So so, conversation number two, create healthy boundaries. Sometimes, oftentimes, the part of the difficulty of this like relationship dynamic is not that people aren't close. It's sometimes that we can be too close, especially with mothers. We tend to not necessarily know where the boundaries really are because the caring bond, that support bond is so strong. I'm curious for you, how do you navigate boundaries and learning how to even recognize your own boundaries? Like, what does that look like? I feel like I've been in the boundary training program. 
I'm serious because I think I've existed in this world with not a whole lot of boundaries and I didn't, it wasn't even a a conversation until maybe five years ago. Uh, Like it wasn't even a concept until about five years ago for me. Usually I usually identify a boundary has been crossed afterwards (laughs) because I'm like, Oh, that didn't, that did not feel good. Why? Why didn't that feel good? Oh, because of this. And uh, I have to kind of go back retroactively and say, okay, I have a line here. This is a topic I can talk about. This is not. This is where I allow this person to influence me. This is where I don't. And, uh, and now I think I've gotten better at knowing with specific people what I can talk about. But also I think for me and knowing, knowing where my own boundaries are. So I, I don't know. This isn't totally clear. But just like I said, I'm figuring that out with my kids and reinstituting boundaries that are helpful. I find that if I become resentful of someone, it's because I've let them walk past a boundary that I didn't know that I had. So I have to identify that resent, not blame them for that, but go, oh, I'm being resentful because I've lost my power here. Why have I lost my power here? Oh, because I, you know, I let them come in too far here, or I didn't tell them, I didn't state something, I didn't share my own need or my, my want in that moment. And so that's how I've had to like reverse engineer my boundaries. Yes. Uh, I don't know if there's another way to figure out where my boundaries are other than (laughs) notice where they've already been passed. (laughs) Well, I think that, I mean, I think that that is like, that's kind of part of the work of like the scientist, you know, like the researcher is like cause and effect. And like, sometimes it's not until we see an effect that we're like, Ooh, I want to know what the cause was, you know? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we do have to retroactively look at things, but then it's through that process of actively doing that. I think instead of pretending like, oh, I just don't do, I don't like that feeling. I'm just never going to do that again. Instead, if you can be like courageous and excited, you know, to face and like metabolize your fears then of whatever it is, you know, that you're afraid to say like, I don't want to talk about that person or I don't want to talk about that thing. Or, you know, it makes me really uncomfortable when I hear you talk about my whatever, anything, you know, there's so many different examples that to say that hard thing can be really scary, but it also, it comes with practice, right? So sometimes we don't realize until after the fact, Oh yeah, I guess I didn't want to talk about that. That went really poorly. And then the next time as the conversation approaches and we are then finding ourselves talking about that same thing, it can be easier to like red lights start going off or at least some sort of alarm starts going off of like, oh, tense moment, right? And so then we eventually will get to the point where we're like, okay, this is a predictable pattern now. I'm going to say something for myself and that's going to be me communicating my boundary, which is just different for everybody. You know what I'm noticing too with boundaries is sometimes I've used boundaries, especially with my parents as these are the areas I will not talk about. But what has happened then is that our relationship has really been stunted because there's a handful of very, very, very important things to me that we can't talk about or that I haven't allowed us to talk about. So now I think I'm going through the process of removing the boundaries that I had to put there because there were not healthy conversations opening the floodgates again, and then reinstituting new boundaries. And this is, we can talk about this topic, but this is how I want to talk about this topic. Yes. And um, yeah, and I have to tell you, after we go through these four points, I'm going to tell you why these are so helpful for me, because there's a conversation that I'm literally getting ready for, (laughs) that I feel like this is my training for. So (laughs) that's wonderful. I'm totally soaking this up. Number three is to own and change your part. Mm. in it 
to recognize how and why you react or feel something. Mm -hmm. And that's like crucial to any conflict resolution is understanding where those feelings are coming from. Mm -hmm. And that takes practice. Like I know that when I first started identifying my feelings and, you know, talking about what was going on inside my head and body and trying to communicate that it took a lot of tries of just kind of saying a bunch of things. And sometimes that's still what I do in order to get the ball rolling of like how I'm really feeling, because sometimes you just have to start talking in order to understand what's really in there. And And to own it, that ownership piece is huge because if we start out by saying you did this and you did that, it puts the other person on the defensive. So what it does is it does the opposite. It doesn't create a safe space. But if we're vulnerable first and we go into it saying, hey, I recognize that that I did this and I own that it impacted you this way. And I'm, you know, and I'm sorry for that. So for me, I think one of the conversations with my mother that I'm literally having later today, which is ridiculous, the timing on this, Aurora, (laughs) not surprised, not surprised, is that um, I haven't talked to her about my partner in years because they don't talk. There was a very big rift that happened um, for many different reasons. There was some political stuff in there, some personal stuff in there that created a rift between my partner and my my mom specifically. And what it did was it kind of put me, what I felt like in the middle, but you know, I not just in the middle, I'm a I'm a player in all of this. And I had to stop, I had to fully put a boundary to say, we are not talking about my partner. Like it is not, it is completely in a hundred percent off off limits. Because the way in which she would bring him up was really not healthy for me, for just not engaging in that conversation. And I have to own that putting that conversation off limits for what I needed. Also, it hurt her in not being able to connect with me and not being able to to share that part. Um, I can own why I had to put that off limits and my own pieces of that dynamic that I feel like she blamed him. Mm. So I feel like there was a lot of blame on my partner for something that I was creating as well. And uh, those, that's, I think, the really big piece for me to, to own before going in there um, so she can better understand the full, what I feel like is the full picture. And uh, yeah, and I am really excited for this conversation because I feel like it's, there's a, an opening up because my partner for the first time in a very long time said, I would like to talk to your mom and mm. heal that relationship. And uh, I was like, oh my God, this is possible. It's yes. possible. Totally, um, totally. Because we, I mean, right, we all have a power in, in part of it. And that power is, is owning what we have done, what we have said, what we say and do and carrying that forward, you know, and, and that is like so beautiful and so exciting. It really I, is. I'm, oh God, I'm so excited. And I'm so nervous. <laughs> I really am. I'm like, oh God, it's been four years. They haven't talked like, please, can, can this go well? And I feel like I've got so much power in that to set it up, you know, to own my piece, to really create that safe space for my mom and just for my mom and I to get in a good place before that conversation happens. And um, yeah, totally. and I have a lot of trust. I, I fully trust my partner in the way that he will communicate with her. And uh, I'm not, I'm not worried in that realm, but this is like next level healing. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for that. Really, really excited. 
I just want to say along with owning your part, uh, a really good way to like reach, you know, to change the patterns of behavior is by discussing with a therapist. I just want to like therapy can really do no harm in my opinion. And they just have so many good tools to share. And so fourth last is accept the unfixable. I understand that to go two different ways, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, and Dr. Wernsman was referring to it as like, sometimes dysfunction is dysfunction and, you know, you just need to understand it for what it is. And sometimes the healthiest, most loving thing you can do for yourself is to cut ties with an abusive person, you know, whether that's physical or emotional abuse. So that's, you know, I, I totally understand that. But I also feel that sometimes accepting the unfixable is literally just like radical acceptance of who people yeah. are. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. When you said that, I, I so I feel like I've gone through a lot over the last um, weeks and months in this area. And I feel like I've gotten to the full point of acceptance of when we are in a triggered state, we react a certain way. And instead of judging all the people around me, like, why do you react like that? Why do you react like that? I don't like it when you react like that and create blame when they're in a triggered state. The best thing that I could do is just fully accept when you're in a triggered state, this is how you're going to react. And then I have a choice and that's where I can draw my boundaries to say, yep, I'm willing to engage with you right now or no, not going to engage with you. And I'm not saying that you're wrong, you know, but you're in a triggered state and I know, and I'm not willing to engage it at this point. And same thing for me, because I find that when I go into a triggered state, my default is I'm not triggered. What are you talking about? And I go like Spock <laughs> or what I think is Spock. And, uh, but then I have a really hard time identifying. I'm like in denial of my own triggered state. And I hate that about myself. I'm like, crap, can't I just learn this now? But if I'm really honest and if I radically accept my own triggered state, my own triggered state is I shut down emotionally. I'm just not emotionally present for myself or other people. I could blame myself for being like that, or I could just fully admit it, own it, tell people, hey, when I'm triggered, I pretend like I'm not triggered and I really want your support and understanding. I'm not trying to be self-righteous, but I seriously, this is my mode that I go into and hold a space for me I will try my best <laughs> to do what I need to do to work through that. <laughs> I totally just got this like image of you being like a turtle, like inside your shell and just being like, what are you talking about? I'm not inside my shell. No, I'm totally not triggered. I'm fine. I'm hanging I'm with totally everybody. Fine. Yeah. You can, I'm here. I'm still here. So <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Oh my God. Oh, I totally relate. I just like, so I totally smart. relate. And you know, that's like one of the most empowering things that I have found about like personal growth and like self-discovery has been in really identifying who I am and knowing who I am, feeling confident, even in knowing that I make really bad choices sometimes, enjoy learning a certain way or whatever it is, like just knowing aspects to who I am. Yeah. It then makes it easier because then it's, we're no longer afraid of being that person. You know, I, yeah. I something simple is like, oh. I'm late a lot. I'm late a lot. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is a pattern, right? And so we need to, and I've started doing things like, I just tell people I'll be an hour later than I plan, but now mm-hmm. I've adjusted my time to now I'm consecutively two hours late. So <laughs> for certain things, not very important things, but the point being that like just yesterday I was late for something and I was like, you know what, instead of pretending like I'm not, instead of not messaging 
this person telling them that I'm late because I'm embarrassed to say that I'm late because of how late it is. Instead, I'm just going to feel this embarrassment and I'm going to own it. And I'm going to send them a message saying, I am late. I'm so sorry. And like, I'm just going to hold this feeling because then if I can feel this, I can want to change it. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. That's, that's talk about acceptance, radical acceptance. It's radical self-acceptance too. Yes, exactly. Denying who we are and how we show up in the world. If we just owned it, you know, for every bit that is every joyous part and every painful part, that awareness, everything starts with that awareness. And if, yeah, just letting that And I think that so many of our relationships get to change that way, like mother-daughter relationships, you know, that really make it so all of the relationships can change with our own self-awareness. It makes it easier for us to communicate with other people when we know who we are and we love who we are. I think it makes it easier to love other people as well. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful point. I love you so much, Megan. I'm so glad that you got to join me. This is so great and so helpful. So good. I'm so glad. And I wish that we could talk forever because we always have a million things to talk about. But one day I'll meet you in person. Yeah. It'll be a fantastic day. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation. It's been great. That was Megan Batia of Amory Podcast. You can find them with their handle on Instagram at Amory Podcast, as well as on Spotify. They have over 20 episodes of real conversations, vulnerable conversations, and I would highly recommend to listen.